0: This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood Mackenzie production. I'm David Miller. Hydrogen has been a hot topic in the energy transition discussion for a while now. The huge potential of green hydrogen as a source of renewable energy, as it could meet 35% of the UK's energy demand by 2050, for example, is well documented. However, significant barriers still exist, most notably the cost. On the show today, we check in on the hydrogen market and look to the year ahead. In the US, investment continues to pour into the sector, aiming to reduce costs by 80% by the end of the decade. There are seemingly endless new projects in the pipeline, but how many are ready to progress to FID? I'm joined by Murray Douglas, VP of Hydrogen and Ammonia Research at Woodmac. Thanks for having me. And by Vicki Paley, Head of project delivery at Protium Green Solutions.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: To predict the big moves we might see this year in hydrogen. Murray, what's your thoughts on the overall hydrogen uh, market today? I mean, this is a topic that we've been talking about for a while now. Huge potential, but it doesn't seem to have accelerated as fast as maybe we would have liked. I mean, you've got, I mean, some of the projects have struggled to get to FID. We're in a high interest rate environment. A lot of the growth also seems to pertain to blue hydrogen uh, right now, rather than green hydrogen. But what are your overall views, and how we can kind of kickstart getting some more growth from here through 2050?
2: I think there's it's, it's a good question, Dave, because there's two there's two ways to look at this. You know, you can I think it's easy to become quite downbeat around the challenges really facing such a nascent market but you know like you know you've you've captured some of the some of the issues the sector has faced there in terms of you know high interest rates cost inflation across the board which are just frankly really challenging the industry but you know you know that's not unique to hydrogen it's just felt more acutely within the hydrogen sector because it's because it's new and 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 they are very very reliant on on bringing costs down quickly before things really get going i think then on the flip side the UK, it hasn't awarded as much capacity as it had hoped to award at the end of last year, but it's awarded capacity. It's It's got the market going. There was a lot of learning as they went through that initial hydrogen allocation round one through the course of last year. And look, we, we still think there'll, there'll be a little bit more attrition through even though those projects are awarded, there's no guarantees that those projects then make it to FID. So I think that is something the industry needs to be aware of. And so that, again, we we shouldn't get too downbeat if one or two of those projects fall away before an investment decision. This is also complicated for policymakers, right? It's taking them time to get things lined up. You know, we've seen that in the US, the Treasury just releasing those rules just before the end of the year. Those have been long awaited. So some in the industry haven't got quite what they were hoping for, but the rules are there, they're clear. So, So everyone knows what they're working with. So you can actually begin to make sensible investment decisions around the, the rules as they stand. And, you know, there'll be undoubtedly a bit of an ongoing lobbying effort around those, but that should close quite soon. Um, and, and then everyone can kind of get on with it, if you like, and and, and understand the, the boundaries within which they're working.
1: And I think there's those fiscal rules and also, um, especially at a UK level and from, a, I guess, a project development level, which is where I'm heavily involved is, is the understanding around legislation and hazardous substance consent and environmental permitting and all of these things that each of these projects are going to have to go through and making sure that everything that we do is captured and the learnings are shared across all of the projects. Because ultimately, whether your project won Ha or it didn't, or if it's a smaller project, we're all doing these projects to achieve the same goals, which is to meet net zero and by sharing the learnings across the entire supply chain through development, contracting, financing, raising debt, that is going to help accelerate the future projects as well and also drive those costs down.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems that much of the policy has focused on hydrogen production. But I mean, there's there's massive investment needed for transportation and storage of hydrogen. I mean, Vicki, you've got some obviously success with co-location with your customers, which makes it very easy. But with everything being focused on, on the production of hydrogen, I think there's a massive build out to really grow the hydrogen market is going to be needed on that transportation and storage. So how can we get some of the focus to be able to hit all aspects of the value chain and not just the production side?
1: I guess- From a blue hydrogen perspective or a a larger scale, there are a lot more thinking around that kind of large scale storage and infrastructure around, you know, large scale piping networks across the UK and things like that. What we try and do is really minimise the amount of storage and logistics required to try and basically mitigate that risk because it is such a challenge. Um, So from our perspective, we we really try and and reduce it. What I would say on the customer side is that I think there's been a lack of certainty around carbon pricing. And therefore, we really see our customers struggling to commit to long-term contracts. And I think this is across the board because they don't know what is going to happen from a policy perspective in the long term. And for these projects to work, for them to be financed, um, and for us to be able to raise debt and investment on them, we need to have a long-term offtake because we need to be able to pay back our capital because they're very capital-intensive projects over a long-term period. And so without that certainty from the government, and I know there's carbon border adjustment mechanism coming in in 2027, and we're also consulting on um, changes to the ETS. But I think that has also stalled projects over the last couple of years because customers aren't sure what's going to happen and what the policy is going to be. So they, even though they want to make changes now, they can't because it's too uncertain.
0: Murray, on the cost side, I mean, blue hydrogen has a cost advantage right now uh, for green. But overall in the market, how are you seeing costs of these projects? Are they Are they starting to come down? I know we anticipated them to come down earlier, uh, but they haven't. And do you project them to at least start at some point to decline?
2: Yeah. So, look, you know, the bad news is the the costs aren't coming down yet. I mean, in a a lot of markets, you know, particularly for electrolytic hydrogen, we've seen costs increase. And, you know, but look, it depends what your measure of cost is, but, you know, the typical measure of cost in this industry is levelized cost of hydrogen. Um, What... The really important thing to, to, and it's a somewhat obvious point, right? The, The most important thing in your levelized cost of hydrogen, your LCOH for electrolytic hydrogen, is your electricity feedstock cost. That is, you know, in, it obviously depends, but in most cases, that's over two thirds of your LCOH component. So, you need to do everything you can to minimise that electricity cost, and we we often see a lot of emphasis around you know the, the the cost of the stack, and of course that's important, but it still comes back to how do you minimise that electricity cost, and then secondly, because that electricity cost is high, can you secure a higher efficiency um, electrolyzer stack? Because then that minimises your your overall cost in electricity. So that's what we're beginning to see at the moment across the industry: is that you know some some of those higher um, higher efficiency electrolyzers can be appealing in in many cases because they can help to control that cost. Um, and then, of course, what we're also seeing is you know can you control some of the costs around the EPC, the balance of plant, these sorts of elements. Uh, and again, th- this is where hydrogen is. It's unique. It's, it's it's complicated. You know, the offerings from the different electrolyzer OEMs they're not they're not all of the, you know they're not they have not got all the same sort of boundary around them. They're they're all slightly different. Um, so what we're also seeing is that a lot of those project developers are, are you know, having to work a bit harder and do a bit more of the due diligence to try and compare like for like across those electrolyzer OEM offerings as well, which, again, just, just adds to the complexity. So, you know, we're not seeing costs come down yet. We are fully expecting those costs to come down, and that is mainly driven by our view that renewable costs in particular do resume a downward trajectory. Um, again, in the near future, and yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we're seeing anything um, too questionable in that sense. You know, there is still a very strong expectation that the cost of wind, the cost of solar, does really get on that downward trajectory once again, and that helps to control things.
1: Uh, I completely agreed on the electricity prices, and you know that's one of our key drivers, and something that we try and do with our co-located renewables. And we private wire those to our electrolyzers so that we can drive down the cost of electricity as much as we can by controlling those electrons and having them under the proteum umbrella, I guess. But, you know, where we see costs coming down around wind and solar and everything, um, I think is is great. But. The other thing that impacts that is grid charges. So as soon as your electron is on the grid, you're exposed to grid charges and the grid infrastructure, and that's really where you see the prices rising. The other interesting point is, you know, even if you have your own renewables, they're only, they're profiled, um, so you're getting them for a certain capacity factor, a certain proportion, and then you basically need to sculpt some kind of grid PPA around that, which is expensive, um, and you can't do that for twenty years because you probably don't want to be locked into electricity prices for twenty years. No one wants to do that. So it'd be interesting to hear Murray how you see, you know, that even though renewables are coming down, how we can overcome those challenges around grid and sculpting around PPA where we don't have that renewable availability.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, and that's that's a very similar challenge that we that we hear from every single project developer that we speak to I'm afraid i don't have a silver bullet to that but yeah no it's a great point as well on the grid the grid charges you know that is a that's a real challenge and and again that's different by market you know so so some markets it's um it's more manageable and 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 in others less so um but it's it, you know i made that point before that efficiency is important on the electrolyzer stack but then equally if you get into this position where you're maybe running electrolyzer at a lower Load factor, and just kind of capturing some of that lower cost renewable. How much more does the efficiency matter? So I, I think again, you know, your choice of electrolyzer vendor can vary quite significantly based on what your power supply is. You know, are you are you topping that up with grid PPA? How much of that are you topping up? So again, everything becomes very bespoke. It's it's quite unlike a lot of other things in the energy markets where you know you start to see project developments look quite similar um across the world i i just don't think we're going to see that and and again this is just another thing that the industry needs to work through but it it will take time there aren't there aren't many shortcuts to figuring figuring some of this out
1: and i think the key challenge from from our perspective as an owner operator as well is that we have to balance uh, profitability. So, being able to produce hydrogen when the cost of electricity is low, with the demand side from our client as well, and so then that's where storage comes into play quite heavily as well. Is how do you then use expensive storage to balance those costs? And it's so it's there's so many variables, and it's extremely as you will probably know, Murray. I assume this is what you do <laughs> um, to balance, you know, and to model that and see how that's you know all going to work out, and and then reduce your LCOH. Um, to to a margin that's you know profitable and is acceptable for the client and the customer on a, a long term basis to to displace their current fuels.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think maybe coming coming back to you know, maybe we, where we were kind of heading before is that you know what one part is about bringing those costs down. You know that that's that's critical. No, no debate over that. What we're also beginning to see though is that how how do you kind of push up that you know, like if you like the displacement cost for hydrogen to be able to penetrate these other sectors and I think that's where we're also seeing some quite interesting things happen you know Vicky already mentioned the importance of putting a cost on carbon and also frankly some certainty on that cost of carbon we're beginning to get more questions around you know will you know do we need to see something like a carbon price floor that we saw in the UK market many years ago and that that was actually really important for helping the phase out of coal generation in the UK market so you know, might we see the European market begin to consider something like a carbon price floor again? Because again, it's about offering that certainty. And in a cap and trade, you know, carbon ca- a cost on carbon can make a real difference to allowing hydrogen to penetrate the market. But again, it's a cap and trade market, so you can- you haven't at the moment got any real certainty on on where that carbon cost is headed, or 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 just how low it could get. I think there's an expectation that policymakers will intervene as they have in the past. But maybe that's not quite enough to lend against at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is great because th- this is outlining a lot of the, the complex challenges that are facing the industry, right? It's not just a headline, produce hydrogen, everything's great. There's a lot. You you mentioned the grid. I mean, that's a that's a whole other issue that we've spent a number of podcasts talking about. I mean, one of my guests had been 40 years working in the grid uh, space. And he said, I fully don't understand it. So I mean, there, there's so many complexities around it that just further require you know everybody coming together, whether it's policy, financiers, you name it. One of the challenges that I've always been worried about with the boom in energy transition is the supply chain. So Vicki, as, as you look at your projects, I mean, have you seen any disruptions in the, in the supply chain or, or cost increases? I mean, how is that going for you?
1: Yeah, so I guess the key thing for us will be the next few years. So as these hydrogen allocation round projects um, start to go through procurement and, you know, coupled with the projects that we're doing as well, we'll probably start to see some pretty significant delays in the supply chain. I don't think that the manufacturing capability is there in terms of where we need to be by 2030 for electrolyzers. And so, yeah, we will start to to really see that coming through. And I think it's on the key components, which are, I guess, new to the hydrogen industry, which is the new technology, electrolyzers, and also the refueling stations and all of the associated compression with that. And then I guess from an offtake perspective, you need to make sure that the technology that you need to in order to use the hydrogen is also accelerating at the same pace and we're making sure that both of those things from a supply end demand side are accelerating together. So hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, um, we need to start bringing those to the UK. I know that there's a lot of manufacturing, well not a lot, but there's more manufacturing in Europe looking at left-hand drive and how do we bring that to the UK. Proteam actually just was awarded £30 million as part of the DFT's um, zero emission road freight transport grant um, for a project called High Hall, where we'll be looking to deploy 30 fuel cell, electric heavy goods, vehicles, trucks along the M4 corridor between the UK and Wales between now and 2030. So projects like that are really important to making sure that the supply chain and the technology is ready for the hydrogen supply that's going to be available on the market.
0: Murray, how are you addressing the supply chain issues as you're looking at you know, your analysis and forecasts?
2: Well, I, th- I think what we're what we're seeing is that supply chain. Actually, a lot of the a lot of the challenges are extending right through back into the renewable space, and that's actually where a lot of those initial challenges are coming through and feeding through to the cost increases. Um, with hydrogen itself, it, you know, it, it's like Vicky outlined it, you know that again things are new, things are scaling. We see a lot of. I think you know one of the important things to note. We'll, we'll see a lot of public announcements about you know a certain electrolyzer OEM has announced you know X gigawatts of new capacity will be online by 2025. I think what we just need to always understand is that what they're really announcing is that we've got we've got the floor space. Um, we're we're committing the spend to the floor space to to be able to produce that sort of capacity, not necessarily having the labor, the skills, the machinery materials in place to actually produce that by that given year as well. So a lot of what we do when we're looking at the the scaling of electrolyzer manufacturing globally is is also really trying to get a handle on, you know, wh- when will we actually begin to see that sort of capacity and how does that marry up with the sort of order books that we're seeing filling up for electrolyzer vendors? Because what we're also seeing is that, you know, some of those electrolyzer vendors are are building up quite heavy order books um, versus some that, that that maybe maybe haven't got as, as as you know long a track record in electrolyzer stacks as well. So it's just going to take them a bit longer. Um, and then you kind of get into these other um, challenges that 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 we we keep hearing from project developers as well is that you know around how you share the the risk um, around some of these you know what's still a a relatively new technology in the way that we're scaling it and. You know, some developers might be willing to split some of that risk, um, and then others will be pushing that risk back to the electrolyzer vendor. And and again, these these are all things that begin to slow things down, they begin to add costs. Um, and I'm I'm sure you know, no doubt Vicky and, and the Proteum team have have been facing similar um challenges around how that's worked through. You know, it will be resolved. It again, it, it's it's just another thing that, that will add time and add some cost.
1: And I think the other thing to layer on top of that as well is bankability. So if you're looking to get project finance for your projects and raise debt, then that bankability issue is key. And so not everybody will you know, finance certain OEMs and track record becomes extremely important. And where you're in a nascent market where not many people have a track record, then it's how do you get lenders comfortable with that risk sharing profile um, and with being able to, you know, to finance these projects, to push them forward.
0: On the finance side, I mean, who's who's financing these types of projects? I mean, with the energy transition in general, what we've seen a lot, of, I've talked about this kind of gap in financing from early stage to then being really bankable. There's this gap, and that seems to be filled with larger companies that are doing partnerships and investing in these projects to get a foothold in the energy transition. But are there any other investors besides... You know, larger companies looking for an energy transition angle that are actually investing uh, in these in these types of projects. I mean, I guess the the general question is, where is the money
2: coming from for these? What well, what we're seeing is that we're we are seeing some, you know, a a a handful of hydrogen focused investment funds being being set up, and and those have, have have already built a track record of of investing into some of these projects. We're also seeing some of the projects that have been that have moved forward, particularly, you know, actually some of the early success that we saw in terms of scaling electrolytic hydrogen was um, those which are part of refinery operations, so which typically involve a, a large integrated major. And so, you know, some of that is is essentially been financed off the balance sheet as well. And some of those he- heavier costs can just be in- absorbed into the kind of wider integrated refinery complex as well, which makes things a little bit easier. Um and and you know then we we are seeing some some larger institutional investors come into the space as well. So I don't I don't think there's a there's a lack of interested parties. Um, but again, it's 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 one of those. You know, there's a lot of challenges to, to kind of stitching the financing together, um, and that's also taking some time to work through.
1: Yeah, and I think looking at it from two levels, so obviously you have you know your your top co company financing, and then also project financing as well. And it depends at how you want to finance your relative projects and how you want to finance, you know, your company to expand and grow. And, you know, just to echo Murray's points, we spoke to 150 different funds last year. So there's a lot of appetite across all of the funds for having project, hydrogen projects, particularly green hydrogen projects with long-term offtake in their portfolios. But the, the challenges do come when... You know, they want to see, well, who is your off-taker? How long are they signed on for? Where is the off-take contract? Those kind of things. And that's where you're trying to marry up that financial commitment with the commitment from the off-taker. And, the, and then that becomes challenging, as Murray kind of alluded to, is is pulling that all together. And then from a, a bank's perspective and, and raising debt, again, we're seeing the same kind of level of interest in the infrastructure and financing the infrastructure but again it's about where is the project where are the projects in terms of progress where are the agreements um, in terms of progress and having that certainty around those for that funding to be able to come in so yeah i think there's a there is a lot of interest and it's just about timing and security i guess of of those contracts to to get the actual funding through the door yeah
2: and i think i think that's where the uk has done a good job you know like we said at the beginning, you know, stitching together that producer and that off taker really helps with that.
0: Yeah. Are there any other criteria that is high up their investment uh, question list um, as they're looking at these? This is very similar to oil and gas midstream, but to build the pipeline, you look, okay, you got long-term commitments. Okay. You, you can get the bank financing on that as long as it's a credit worthy counterparty uh, on that. And so, Clearly, that's going to be number one. Who's your offtake? What's their credit quality on that, and the, and the tenor of the, the term? But what other kind of investment criteria are they focused on in your discussions with the, you know, 150 different funds?
1: Uh, so technology partners. Um, so who who's supplying the technology? What's their creditworthiness, the bankability of of those technology partners and uh, EPC partners um, and the engineering side of things, and then obviously. If you're looking for top co-investment, the quality of the team within your organization um, is always important to investors as well and your pipeline. So what other, you know, you obviously have your projects that are closer to contract that you'll be out pitching, but then what does your pipeline look like? How many other people are you speaking to? You know, what's the kind of scalability of this project? And actually something interesting that Murray touched on before was around how each of these projects is actually looking to be quite bespoke um, and something that we're trying to do at Proteum is is avoid that bespoke nature of projects um, and have sort of archetypal approach and a productized approach to our projects so that we know that we can have a size range and this is what that project will look like within this size range and so that we can really help with the scalability of the projects and hopefully driving down the costs through the learnings across that. So. There may be a kind of bespoke element of how you operate um, and how you respond to grid and how you provide hydrogen to your customer, but the design and deployment of that project is we are trying to make into a product uh, so that we can basically just off the shelf uh, those solutions in almost like building block format uh, to make sure that we're, we're capitalizing on economies of scale going forward.
0: Murray, comparing the, the U.S. and the U.K. markets on, on hydrogen, do you think that there's any lessons learned that the U.S. Uh, market could adopt because the U.K. seems to be really pushing forward? I don't know if we're a little bit stalled here in the U.S., but just something to help kickstart that and maybe some things that are good takeaways for the U.S.
2: market. Yeah, so I, it's a great question, and we get this a lot. You know, the the kind of U.S. versus U.K. Europe comparison, and 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 obviously they have taken quite different routes for 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 a for a variety of reasons, and, and probably no real surprise in terms of those routes that they've taken. You know, I think in Europe, you know, the, we've just got a very well trodden path around contracts for difference. You know, utilities, energy companies, they understand them; they're they're used to them. The banks are used to lending against them, so. Even though it's a very different sector that the, the concept is is well established whereas in the u.s you know just offering that big incentive to to producers and then letting them worry about the the, the work to kind of secure the offtaker i think you know that is definitely a challenge in the u.s but then what we've also seen is, is the u.s overlay these things like you know the clean um hydrogen hubs and um, which which also aim to address that by offering sort of clusters of those you know ult- ultimately the, the the two markets are just also very very different and you know they're they're arguably trying to achieve um potentially different things that the US has got a a, a large existing carbon intensive hydrogen base and so i think one of the one of the questions we always get is that you know how how can the US design its policy to displace that carbon intensive hydrogen most quickly and i think a lot of the, the companies that we speak to, this is where some of that frustration is born out of, because you know their hope was that there would be a bit of a relaxation around the, the rules from Treasury on that 45V in order them, for them to bring down that levelised cost of hydrogen as far as they possibly could. And some of our calculation was showing that we could get it down to the level with that very generous $3 per kilogram subsidy that was on offer, where you would be able to displace that carbon-intensive gas-based hydrogen on its own, without any other involvement, but that begins to become a bit more marginal. But then, equally, the blue hydrogen looks like it, 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 it again is very strong, and that links in very nicely with what the US is also trying to build out around the CCUS side. So, to some extent, it's a bit horses for courses. You know that the, this, you know, the, the US approach works for the US. Lessons learned: they were slow in getting some of those um, some of those rules in place. We felt the the European market was quite slow as well, but they still definitely moved well ahead of the US. And you know, if you just look, took a small sampling of some of the projects that deferred FID in the US last year because the rules weren't in place. You know that that adds up in terms of capacity. That you know everything just drifts out like one two years as a result of that, and and because that's been caught up in this continued cost inflation that's added a further challenge with some of that capacity moves even further back. So, you know, if if the US had just got those rules out sooner, you know, they'd, they'd be much closer to to meeting some of the targets that they've set out in, in, in 2030, for, for example.
1: And I think similarly in the UK, you know, we see a lot of, I guess, flip-flopping on policy and, and targets, and that's really difficult for developers, for hydrogen producers, and for customers as well. So having you know, sticking to the plan, sticking to the targets, I think is is really important. And something else that we do in the UK, which I think is, is good and something that could be learned from in the US is that we have, you know, several different types of subsidies as well as the CFD. So we have um, the RTFCs, which is the Renewable Transport Fuel Credits. We have a couple of other funds um, outside of the hydrogen allocation round as well. Um, And each of these can be used interchangeably or together across projects. So whether you're selling your hydrogen for heat or selling your hydrogen for transport, you have access to different subsidies, which obviously helps to drive down your levelized cost of hydrogen, um, which I think is really important. And it's a good good base and it it helps with the viability and the early adoption of these projects in the UK.
0: That's been one of the frustrating uh, parts of this is Trying to get some of these policies in place in a hyper-politicized environment uh, that we have today, because I mean, there's there's about three hundred billion of government funding available uh, for these projects. But again, the the devil's in the details, and there's a lot more than just allocating the money. There's the rules and regulations around it that need to be made clear. Um, but again, in the environment we are today, it's it's just not it's just not that easy to to come to common sense answers and and make them policy. You know, hydrogen obviously has has a number of different uses. Vicky, you guys have a a project high haul, uh which I thought was pretty interesting because it's it's with heavy good vehicles and starting out with an initiative. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: We've just won thirty million pounds worth of funding from the Department of Transport in the UK as part of their um, Zerft, so Zero Emission Road Freight um, Fund. Uh, and what we're looking to do is deploy up to thirty heavy goods vehicles along the M4 corridor and decarbonizing the M4 um, using green hydrogen production. So that's from now. So it's a phased approach, phased project from now till 2030. Um, so it brings several aspects of the supply chain together. Uh, obviously, it brings um, the hydrogen supply side. Um, so that's obviously from from our projects and some of our partner projects as well. Um, It brings the midstream, so the refuelling infrastructure into play um, and being strategic around where we locate that refuelling infrastructure. Uh, And then it also brings the the downstream partners together, so the OEMs bringing the fuel cell electric vehicles into the UK and partnering those with uh, customers, so uh, hauliers and logistic companies which are looking to displace their Uh, diesel fleets with these fuel cell vehicles so it's a really interesting project bringing all of those aspects of the supply chain together um, and it's hopefully then going to well it will accelerate accelerate the deployment of hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles in the UK and also at a cost that is competitive with diesel Um, so actually as part of the rules of that project the uh, your levelized cost of hydrogen or your sale, sales cost of hydrogen, I should say, actually, uh, can't be lower than that of diesel. So you have to be on parity with diesel. So it gives gives you good sales margin there across your um, hydrogen production as well.
0: It's interesting that different applications that are starting to pop up in projects. We, we had somebody on the podcast a while ago uh, regarding maritime. So it's uh, ferries within bays yeah. that have moved to hydrogen as well. So very similar, just Yeah, on water.
1: Yeah, and I think that we, you know, as a company, we understand that hydrogen is not a silver bullet. Um, and we don't, we're not hydrogen evangelists. We don't think that it's a good use for each application. But where we see merit in using green hydrogen is in those hard-to-abate sectors, so heavy goods transport, maritime, aerospace, uh, and also in industrial heating applications.
0: So. At the part where I'm going to ask for some predictions uh, from both of you, and Marie, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. You know, Right now, by 2050, hydrogen is projected, or low carbon hydrogen, is projected to be about 4% uh, of the energy supply. I, I think it's got potential to be more than that, obviously under the right circumstances and the right cost structures. What is your prediction on low carbon hydrogen by 2050 and its contribution to the overall energy industry?
2: At uh, Wood Mackenzie, we're we're forecasting that hydrogen makes up about low carbon hydrogen. That is makes up about three percent of total final consumption by that so end use demand, if you like. So maybe I should step back a little bit as well. So you know, similar to what Vicky outlined there, right? We're we're, we're not hydrogen evangelists. We're, we're we're pragmatic about the role that hydrogen plays, and we're 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 quite focused in terms of where it can actually play a role. Um, either because it's just the best option um, for decarbonisation of that particular sector or where it just has a simple cost advantage over the next best alternative. Um, So, you know, on the basis that we try to electrify as much as we can to decarbonise, because that's just generally the cheapest and the most efficient way to decarbonise most end-use sectors, what we also then do is have to build out a tremendous amount of power generation so one of the big roles that we also see for low carbon hydrogen and/or ammonia is as a power ge- dispatchable power generation source through the longer term. Now that is going to take time to get going, um, but you know any country that is serious about developing net zero power grids, like here in the UK, you know you you, you run out of options quite quite quickly in terms of long duration energy storage plays um, to offer balancing and dispatchable balancing into that grid. And so we're beginning to see more and more projects pop up with that. Again, we get into high costs because we need, you know, probably some sort of geological storage in the form of salt caverns. And, or we're, you know, we're looking at um, ammonia firing, um, which we've still got some technology hurdles to cross as well. So, you know, we're into big costs, but, you know, there aren't a lot of alternatives um, once we get into that stage, because you're either continuing to burn, burn gas and apply carbon capture which as we get into lower capacity factors, becomes less economic, we think, than hydrogen-fired power, even with some of those higher storage costs.
0: Uh, That's great. It's tough to say, okay, it's going to be 7% in 2050. It was more along lines of... uh, Because I do think that it's got the opportunity to play a larger role, but to your point, there's going to be... It's going to take some time. There are some projects and opportunities where hydrogen can really play a key key role, but you're going to have to have a lot... A lot of the stars align between policy, financing, just the overall economic environment, all that to, to be able to make that happen. Um, so I figured I mean it's not really a, a percentage question, but it but it's really just pointing out the fact that there's a lot more opportunity for hydrogen in the future. And Vicky?
1: Yeah, I think it needs to be what it needs to be in order for us to meet our decarbonization targets because ultimately this is about meeting net zero and pinning one technology off another and you know driving one technology more than another for percentage points of you know market domination is not going to get us there and we don't have you know we don't have the luxury of the solar and wind markets where they had 20 years to drive costs down we really need to get moving we really need to drive these costs down we really need to get hydrogen into the market we need to start decarbonizing these hard to abate sectors and these heavy heavy duty emitters um because ultimately, this is this is a existential problem that is going to impact every single one of us, and that's really what I think. You know, when it comes down to what percentage this, what percentage that, that's what we need to really hold on to. And what really drives me um, to come to work every morning is to really try and push that forward and make an impact and make a change and and drive the net zero agenda forward. Um, to what it needs to be so that we can live in a net zero world in 2050.
0: Listen, Vicky, Murray, I really appreciate you joining us on the show today. Uh, great discussion. And like I said, there's there's a lot of opportunity for hydrogen. I'm excited about it. Um, there's some obstacles, I think, that the market has to overcome uh, to get there. But I think it's got tremendous potential. So thank you for joining me. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, David.
0: The Interchange is a Wood Mackenzie production. We'll be releasing the show every second Tuesday, so mark your diaries and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm David Miller. it's been a pleasure joining you. See you next time.